0: On the one hand, the best and most brilliant military strategy must be devised in order to help assure victory. But even as plans are made, even as war is waged, it is done in the knowledge, in the faith, that success is only possible with the help of God, and that in victory all glory must be given to God. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 67, Joshua, Henry V, and the Battle of I. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Perhaps the most famous battlefield speech in the English language, and one of the most revered pieces of rhetoric in literature, occurs overlooking the fields of Agincourt in Shakespeare's Henry V. The king, convinced that he is the rightful heir to the throne of France, has journeyed across the Channel in order to conquer the country. Before the battle, his warriors are overcome with fear at the astonishing array of troops that have assembled against them. Oh, murmurs the king's cousin Westmoreland, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. To this, Henry responds that the fact that they are so few is a good thing. The fewer men, the greater share of honor. And he adds that, if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. Henry invites his soldiers to seek this fame as well, in remarks known for the invocation of the Christian Feast of St. Crispian, and the assurance that those that join him in battle shall form a band of brothers forever glorying in that day. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speak that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. The speech has been invoked throughout the centuries as a source of inspiration, at times before the most noble of military endeavors. And yet, and yet, to remove the remarks from their larger literary context is to miss the message that the Bard seeks to teach about military strategy, statesmanship, and faith a lesson that lies at the heart of the first challenges faced by Joshua in the Holy Land. As we have seen, the conquest of Jericho occurred through an astonishing occurrence, the miraculous manifestation of providence, the collapse of the city's fortification following the sounding of the shofar. After the taking of the city, Joshua declares a a sacred ban on the seizing of any wealth, any loot whatsoever. All attained in the conquest is dedicated to God. Chapter 6, verse 18. But as for you, keep away from the devoted things, lest you make yourselves accursed, when you take of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated to the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Why is this Cherem declared? It seems that the decree is linked not only to the way in which Jericho fell, but also to the manner in which military matters are marked by Israel in general. Jericho is the first battle for the Holy Land. The one that will define all others, and it is critical for Joshua to illustrate that when victory in battle occurs, credit is given to God. We saw how, at Seder celebrations throughout the centuries, no glory is given to Moses as the Exodus tale is told. He is revered as the teacher of Israel, Moshe Rabbeinu, not as the redeemer of Israel. The waging of war, the battle at times against empires, can be immensely important, but Israel defines its spiritual glory in a way in which only the relationship with God is shown to be an end in itself. Israel is wary, lest it glorify or come close to divinizing the human wagers of war. The biblical worldview on this matter can be seen through a contrast with the most famous speech of Henry V. As his soldiers eye the French army, the king assures them that after victory is won, an annual feast will take place honoring their achievements on the very day on which the battle occurred, the Christian feast of St. Crispin. Henry says, he that shall live this day and see old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispian's day. And Henry adds, Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall a good man teach his son. The phrase invoked by Henry, This story, shall a good man teach his son, is, I think, an allusion to the biblical obligation to recount the story of the Exodus, the scriptural source for the Passover Seder. And you shall tell your son on that day, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. But that verse obligates us to ascribe the event entirely to the Almighty, as the Bible further puts it, that the Lord took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Thus, no mention really is made of Moses in the Haggadah. The Seder liturgy read as Jews mark the Exodus in flowing cups freshly remembered. Now, of course, Shakespeare had never seen our Haggadah, but it is ironic that in contrast, the quote-unquote Haggadah of St. Crispin's Day has the names of the heroes of Agincourt taking center stage. Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbert, Salisbury and Gloucester. The warrior of Agincourt will tell his son not of the Almighty's outstretched arm, but of his own, as Henry says, he will strip his sleeve and show his scars. Shakespeare, then, has Henry giving us, however unintentionally, an inverted satyr, marked not by humility, but honor, not devotion, but personal glory. And this is precisely what Joshua seeks to prevent in the battles in the land of Israel. If someone takes a glorious bit of gold from Jericho, then the battle will be turned into something else than what it was, a battle that was waged not for self-interest, not for glory, but for obedience to God, and a battle waged through the providence of God. All Israel is bound to obey Joshua's harem, and, much more frighteningly, the Israelites' spiritual bond to one another means that they are all considered responsible, liable, for any violation of the harem that was declared. Yet one man does violate the decree, and seizes glittering objects for himself. Not knowing this, Joshua prepares for the next battle against the city-state of Ai. Given how easily Jericho fell, his soldiers are incredibly confident, as is evident from the report of his scouts in Joshua 7.3. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite I. And do not weary all the people to go there, for they are but few. The Israelites thus reflect a rather incredible confidence stemming from how easy, almost effortless, the conquest of Jericho had been. But now against I, an apparently easier enemy to overcome, Israel is reminded that all it has achieved is through the gift of God. Verse 4. So there went up from there people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shivarim, and smote them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So a small army of men, which thought itself entirely invincible, is utterly defeated. Joshua is distraught, anguished at the possibility that this may foretell future defeat. But the Almighty informs him that the source of their loss was the fact that the cherem had been violated. And through a form of divination, the culprit, a Judahite by the name of Achan, is caught. Achan confesses his crime, and he is executed, reinforcing the power and authority of the cherem. Now Joshua prepares for battle again. He knows that he will face Ai with the assistance of the Almighty, but here is where it gets really interesting. While Joshua, of course, believes in the protection of providence, he nevertheless goes out of his way to devise a military strategy that is most assured of success. Rather than merely a few overly confident men, he assembles 30,000, and he divides them, placing the main army in front of Ai, but a significant number behind the city lying in wait. Chapter 8, verse 10. And Joshua rose up early in the morning and numbered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war that were with him went up and drew near and came before the city, and pitched on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between them and Ai, and he took about 5,000 men and set them to lie in ambush between Beth-el and Ai on the west side of the city. The strategy succeeds. Verse 14. And it came to pass when the king of Ai saw it that they hastened and rose up early, and the men of the city went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people at a time appointed before the plain. But he knew not there were liars in ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them, and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people that were in Ai were called out to pursue after them, and they pursued after Joshua, and were drawn away from the city. The city is thus left unguarded, and the strategy of Joshua succeeds. The victory is apparently a tribute to him and to his plan, but Israel knows that the victory that they have achieved is still by the grace of God. What emerges from the tale of Ai and Joshua will mark many of the biblical battles from this point forward. A theme that will be most fully expressed in the career of David, which is, on the one hand, the best and most brilliant military strategy must be devised in order to help assure victory. At times, a war against a city such as Ai will require one approach. At times, the battle against a Goliath will require another. But even as plans are made, even as war is waged, it is done in the knowledge, in the faith, that success is only possible with the help of God, and that in victory, all glory must be given to God. As we shall see in tomorrow's talk, it is this that will set Israel apart, not only from the empires of its age, but also from every other throughout history, and especially from Rome. Israel, therefore, comes to learn of combining military strategy with faith, and thereby achieves the ability to wage war without glorifying, without divinizing, without worshiping its warriors. And this, ultimately, is one of the lessons learned by Henry, as well. In my discussion of Shakespeare's play, I am, of course, not analyzing the morality of Henry V's war against France. I'm merely noting the literary evolution of Henry in the play, as his understanding of war, statesmanship, and God proceeds. And I'm interpreting what Shakespeare is seeking to tell us about leadership as he sees it. The oratory of the Saint Crispin's Day speech before Agincourt is so well known, and at its best, it was put to excellent use. In 1944, Laurence Olivier put on, a technicolor extravaganza for British television, of Henry V, in order to inspire his countrymen in the battle against the Nazis. But when we actually look at the play, we find that following the victory at Agincourt, which was achieved through the strategic use of archers, Henry has nevertheless altered not only his own approach to this particular battle, but to statesmanship itself. When victory is won, Henry biblically reverts to celebrating not the might of his men, but of God proclaiming, "O God, thy arm was here, and not to us, but to thy arm alone ascribe we all. Everyone remembers the St. Christmas Day speech, the promise that there will be a holiday held on the date of the battle to celebrate and aggrandize the warrior's own achievements, but many often overlook Henry's perspective here when after the battle, he says exactly the opposite. Indeed, Henry V declares a sort of cherem of his own, that anyone who praises himself will be punished, and he says: Come, go we in procession to the village, and be it death proclaimed through our host, to boast of this or take that praise from God, which is His only. Henry then orders a Latin psalm sung. Let there be sung non nobis, he orders. And while non nobis may sound like a uniquely Christian hymn, it is actually the Latin for the opening of the psalm with which we Jews begin the hallel, or praise portion of our Seder. Lolano Hashem Lolano. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, Kavod. rather to your own name give glory. All this is meant for Shakespeare to mark a spiritual evolution in the maturity of the monarch, whom we first meet as Hal, the immature drunkard partying with the famous Falstaff. At the beginning of this play, Henry describes battle as a source of fame and honor and glory, but only after Agincourt does he understand the humility and faith that for the Bible ought to go hand in hand with leadership and statesmanship. And the Bible goes out of its way to stress, as Joshua's plan unfolds during the battle with Ai, that all that happens, including the success of Joshua's strategy, occurs by the grace of God. Verse 18. And the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in thy hand toward Ai, for I will give it into thy hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand toward the city. And the ambush rose quickly out of their place and they ran when he stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it. Is success due to Joshua's plan, or due to God? The answer, of course, is both. At their biblically inspired best, Jewish statesmen, ancient and modern, will combine military strategy with faith. The Israeli strike on the Iraqi nuclear reactor at Osirak was a painstakingly planned mission. But Yehuda Avner, Menachem Begin's speechwriter, reports, that as the planes took off, Prime Minister Begin said to himself, Hashem Yishmor Alehem, may God protect them. And when Begin was informed that the strike was successful, he instinctively exclaimed two words that Jews have said every day for centuries, but which probably no other Israeli Prime Minister would have instinctively uttered before Begin. Baruch Hashem, he said. Thank God. A month later, Begin said to someone about the mission, according to Avner, Am I a believer? Do I believe in Elokei Yisrael, the God of Israel? The answer is a categorical yes, and Begin added, according to Avner, only by the grace of God could we have succeeded in that mission. The Osirak mission was indeed extraordinary and miraculous, but Begin here was illustrating what true biblical statesmanship is supposed to be, uniting Zionist present with the faith of the diasporic past, making manifest Jewish independent action and humble belief so that the tale of Israel in the Holy Land continues from Joshua till now. A true tale so incredible that even Shakespeare could not have imagined it. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.